Well, welcome to our first week of Be My Guest. And uh, throughout these two weeks, we're going to be talking about the potential that you have to see a life change because of a simple invitation that you extend. Uh, an invitation not just to come to a religious place, not just to come to a church experience, not just to meet people that you call church family, but to bring people ultimately to Jesus is uh, one of the greatest joys that I can imagine in this life. And hearing stories of people who take a chance, who, who risk a lot of their pride and risk a lot of their reputation and risk sometimes potential friendships to invite someone to a place that can have such an impact in their life um, sometimes requires so much courage and boldness that we shy away from it. But I believe the most important thing that we can do in the church and outside of the church is to bring people to Jesus. And so I want us to become incredible inviters. I want us to learn what it means to invite people to Jesus. And I want us to embrace a lifestyle, uh, not that simply attends a church ourselves and not that simply um, receives something that God has for us, but shares what we've received with those around us. And so we're going to be looking today uh, at the life of one of the disciples. His name is Andrew, um, and he is not known for a whole lot in Scripture outside of uh, perhaps the most important thing, which is bringing people uh, to Jesus. Uh, this word invite, uh, according to dictionary.com, means to request the presence or participation of in a kindly, courteous, or complimentary way, especially to request to come or go to some place or to do something. So we're not, we're not strangers to invitations and we're not strangers to inviting people. Uh, you invite people uh, to participate in areas of your life or to go places with you on a regular basis. I'm convinced of that, myself alike, that, that inviting people to play a part in our life, to experience things that we experience comes natural. It's something that we long for. We don't want to experience life alone. We want people to experience life with us. And so if you're like me and you have kids and your kids participate in various activities, you invite people to come see your kids participate in those activities. Uh, those of you who may participate in various activities yourself, whether it's uh, musically or whether it's professionally in the business world, you invite people to come and see you do what you do because you want them to experience life with you. You invite people over to dinner to share a meal because you want to get to know them better. You invite people to a restaurant to share a meal because you want to get to know them better. You invite people to parties, uh, whether it's to celebrate a birthday or an anniversary or some special occasion because you want people to share your life's most memorable moments with those who are closest to you. I believe there's two types of invitations. One type of invitation we have a, grip, a grasp on we do really well with. And the other type of invitation is the type of invitation that makes us feel vulnerable at times. It makes us feel like we're taking a risk and it doesn't necessarily come natural. The first invitation is an invitation that benefits the inviter. I'm doing something, come watch me. I'm going somewhere, go with me. I don't want to be alone, please join me. And we invite people into our world to experience our world with us because we long for people to embrace the thing that we embrace. This comes natural. This comes easy. Uh, it doesn't require a ton of courage to speak to people that you know and have a relationship with and invite them to come to dinner. 
You don't struggle with that. You don't, you don't dial the phone and hang up real quick. And then dial the phone and hang up real quick. And it's like, what am I going to say? How am I going to open this conversation? Because it's people you know, you have a relationship with. And you're like, hey, you want to come join me for dinner? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, cool, what do you want to have? And it's natural. You speak to family members and you say, hey, my, my son's got a ball game on Thursday. I'd love for you to come check it out. Why? Because you want them to experience your life with you. You want them to, to, to see your son who makes you so proud. And our pride drives a lot of that. We want people to be proud of the things that we're proud of. We want to showcase the things that we're excited about. It comes natural. There's one type of invitation that benefits the inviter, but then there's a second type of invitation that I believe is a little more difficult because it requires us to be a little more vulnerable, and that's an invitation that benefits the invited. It's an invitation that says, there's nothing in this for me. I just want you to have an experience. I want, to, I want you to go somewhere. I want you to do something. I want you to experience something that's going to leave you in a different state than you came in. I, I see that you have a need in your life, and I want you to come and let me meet a need in your life so that when you leave, a need will be met in your life, and you will leave differently. Life will be better for you as a result of responding to this invitation. It's got nothing to do with celebrating me or enjoying my journey. It's got to do with me caring about you enough to provide an experience or an atmosphere or an environment that's conducive for your growth and your well-being. This isn't always a terribly hard thing to do. If you've got family members who are stubborn like we all do and and maybe they refuse to go to doctors when they have needs and you invite them to come to a doctor, you help make appointments for them and you take them to a place that will benefit them because it's something they have need of. And sometimes if we don't help people take steps that they need to take, then they never receive the things that they need in life. And I believe that this type of invitation is the category that inviting people to church falls under. And I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, uh, but having grown up in church my whole life, from the time I was six or seven, I mean, I have been in church my entire life. Some of the most intimidating conversations I've ever had have been conversations in which I was inviting someone to come to a church that I was attending. I, I, I can't completely tell you the, the logistics of why it causes our heart to beat and why it, it causes sometimes our palms to become sweaty and we feel like we're asking a girl out on a first date, but it's like, hey, I really love my church and I would love for you to come experience it too. And you're like, that's the hardest conversation for me to have. And then we take it a step beyond that and beyond inviting people to simply come to a church environment, there's, there's the invitation to, to receive Jesus personally that we can extend to people and that for most of us, is just unattainable. I mean, we just don't have the courage or the knowledge or the skill that we feel is necessary to lead someone into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this whole idea of having been changed or having been um, completely, radically, having our lives revolutionized by the church and by God and by Jesus uh, sometimes causes us to become inward focused and experience it and love it for ourselves. And, and because of the love and the grace that we've received, we feel as though people don't look at us the same as they used to before we received that. And maybe they'll judge us and maybe they'll say things behind our back if we bring up certain topics when it comes to our faith. 
And I think that, I think that when it comes to inviting someone to a place or to an event or, or to any type of response on their part that we're imagining would benefit their life, if it's an invitation that benefits the invited, I think that there's a predominant reason why I've just been dwelling on the last couple of days why we feel intimidated to invite them, to make the ask, to have the conversation. And I think at its core, it's because we lack the confidence that what we're truly inviting them to is going to change their lives. It's that we aren't fully convinced in our heart of hearts that the conversation we're going to have is going to result in what we think it's going to result in. And there's a good reason for that because if you're like me and you've invited people to church before, there's been people that have said no to you. Right now we're, we're extending invitations to people for our Easter worship experience in two weeks from today. And, and yesterday a few of us were here at the recreation department, we were putting invitations on people's vehicles, just letting them know, getting the word out. And, and as I walked up the street and placed invitations and made my way back, I noticed that some people had taken them off their cars and thrown them on the ground. And part of me just became frustrated, like, you know, I'm out here walking miles to put these on and you don't have the decency to take this home with you. And then I just, I remember that there were people in scripture that rejected Jesus. That face to face, having met the man in the flesh, walked away from him, having not been changed. It's not our responsibility to produce change in people's lives. We simply bring people to Jesus and trust him with the results but we fail to grab, to, to grab onto that fully. And we feel such pressure that people will have a good experience that sometimes we invite people to church and when they actually show up, we're shocked. And we go from this mode of what should be rejoicing, like they're finally here. I can't believe I've been asking for months and they showed up, this is great. And we go into panic mode. Have you ever done this? They've showed up and you're like, oh no, I hope the music's good today. You're like, I hope, I hope the message is good. I hope it's not one of his like many off days and they're gonna leave like that guy is totally crazy. You're like, I hope nothing weird happens today that they're gonna leave like freaked out and thinking that I'm just an idiot in life and never talk to me again. What's their response? What are they thinking right now? He just said something that I don't know what they're thinking about and we have all these conversations, this dialogue in our hearts that causes us to question our role in inviting people to Jesus, it's, it's a difficult thing. But I want us to look today at a few events in the life of a man named Andrew who was one of Jesus' closest followers. He was the brother of a more prominent figure in the New Testament, a man by the name of Peter. A man that we know uh, stood up and preached in front of thousands of people and saw thousands of people come to know Jesus in single moments. This was a man who boldly did incredible things for Jesus. He walked on water Miraculous things followed Peter. And Andrew is simply known in Scripture as the brother of Simon Peter. He gets no credentials for his ability to communicate the gospel. He gets no credentials for his miraculous performances. He gets no credentials for doing something that we think is necessary to be successful in God's eyes. Yet I believe he's one of the most important figures that we can model our lives after in the entire Bible. And so I want us to look at a couple of 
events in his life. First, I want to start with John chapter number one, and we're going to start reading in verse number 35. It says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, speaking of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah, for the Christ, and he had a following of people who were his disciples, and they learned from him, and he taught them that Jesus was once to, was to come. In verse 36, it says, when John saw that Jesus was passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Listen to this. Jesus extends an invitation to these two disciples. He says, come and you'll see. Where are you staying? Come and you'll see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. And Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. I love this. The first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter. This is like ideal scenario. So Andrew responds to an invitation from Jesus himself and is so blown away by his experience and his life is so radically changed that he can't help but in the next moment of his life to run and find his brother and to say, you've got to come meet the Messiah, the Christ. And what happens when he comes and meets him? Jesus transforms his life as well. He was once Simon, but he says, you'll now be Peter. And, and Jesus gives him a new identity. And if this were the case in all of our invitations, we would be inviting everybody to church. You know, come see what this Jesus has done with me. Come experience what he's done for me. And they receive the same experience. They have the same circumstances happen. And it would build our confidence, but sometimes that doesn't happen. But there's one thing that I want to note in this scenario that's incredibly important if we want to be great inviters. I hope you want to be a great inviter. I hope that we'll become a church that's full of great inviters, that our church will be known for caring about people enough and having compassion on people enough to invite them and bring them, not to church, but to Jesus. And here's the, here's the secret that I think we can learn from Andrew in this moment is that he first had a relationship with the person that he invited to Jesus. It's not wrong to go out into the streets and, and call people that you don't know to come see Jesus, but that's not where he went first. After having an experience with Christ, he went to his brother, perhaps one of the closest people that he was connected to on the earth. And having a foundation of a relationship, having known him, having shared intimate moments and, and having built trust together, he says, listen, I've met, I've met Jesus and he's changed my life and you've got to come. And so he brings him to Jesus. If you want to be a great inviter, the first place that you should start is with people that you have a relationship with. This is the first place you should start and how do we typically go out to invite people to Jesus? We typically go backwards, don't we? Don't we sometimes feel like it's easier just to like 
go and pass out a tract to someone on the street that we'll never see again and say, I hope things work out for you because there's no relational tie there and if things don't work out for them, we'll never know about it. And it's sometimes easier to, to place something in the hands of a stranger that would point them towards Jesus. Isn't that easier sometimes than having an intimate conversation with someone that we have a relationship with? I've been a part of several different mission trips and, and a portion of each of the mission trips that I've been on, both uh, here in America and overseas, a portion of those mission trips was spent meeting people that I'd never met before and inviting them to know Jesus personally. And as a pastor, that was one of the most intimidating things that I have, I've done. I would rather stand up in front of a thousand people in a church atmosphere and preach the good news of Jesus than to go into a world of the unknown and meet people that I've never met and somehow move into a conversation quickly about Jesus, not knowing their history or what they believe or the experiences they've had and just say, would you like to place your faith in Christ? I mean, it's just bizarre. Let's just be honest. And not saying that it doesn't work or that God doesn't call people to do that. God may call you to go knock on doors. He may, he may call you to stand on a street corner and preach. But for me, I tend to see that Andrew had a lot of success starting with people he had a relationship with. And so I'm convinced. I'm convinced that life change happens best through the context of relationships that we have with people. That we can build trust with people and the words that we offer carry more weight than it does with strangers. Imagine, think about it. You know people, you have relationships with people and then you experience life change. Why would you not tell the people you love most about it and want that for them? And so Andrew, he goes to his brother and he just says, come on, man, you gotta go. You gotta, you gotta experience this. I imagine it was probably a brief conversation and it wasn't a huge theological wording. He just says, hey man, like we've met Jesus. You've heard about him, I've heard about him. He's real, he's there, come, come see for yourself. And don't we tend to put more pressure on ourselves than that? Don't we tend to think that we have to have like everything figured out and explain it completely and with theological accuracy and, and completely help people mentally understand the things of God before they can make a decision to follow him and because we don't feel confident in doing that we we just don't risk the conversation I want to encourage you if you want to be a great inviter just to start with the people you have a relationship with and simply invite them to come and see just bring them to Jesus just just say would you join me you got to come check this out I think you'll love it I think that it can do incredible things for your life the first thing, if we want to be a great inviter, is to begin with people that we have relationships with. In the sixth chapter of the book of John, uh, we read of another account. It's a familiar account when Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children. You've, you've heard the story if you've been around the church before. I want to read a portion of this to us. It's John chapter number six, starting in verse one. It says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. 
Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Notice he's speaking to Philip here and listen to Philip's response. He only asked this to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. But Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So Jesus is with his disciples. He's teaching them. He's on a mountainside and up the mountain comes a huge mass of people. And Jesus says to Philip, hey, we need to feed these people. And what does Philip do? Through his natural eyes, he sees an impossibility and he begins to make excuses to Jesus. I mean, come on, you can't be serious. Half a year's wages wouldn't even give enough for everybody to have one bite. There's no way we can feed these people. We've got to like come up with plan B. There's got to be a way that we can send them somewhere. Maybe we can split them up. Maybe we can send them to different cities and villages and we can get them fed, but there's nothing we can do here. And I love that Andrew jumps in. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Listen to this. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? One disciple says it's impossible. There's no way. But Andrew says, it might not be enough, but it's a starting place. Here's here's a boy. He's got five loaves and, and two fish. And I don't think it'll be enough for everybody, but but we're going to bring it to Jesus. I've often wondered what went on in the mind of this little boy. In this culture, um, 12-year-olds would have been considered adults, so we can assume that this little boy, as he's referred to, is not 12 years old at this time. And perhaps he was sent to get food for his family, and he was on his way back home when he came across this group of people. And a man by the name of Andrew comes to him and says, says hey, buddy, I need your food. You see all those people? So we've got to feed them. Will you, will you come come to Jesus? Will you share your food with us? Can you imagine what goes on in the mind of this little boy? You're like, man, are you crazy? And on top of that, if you've got young kids, they don't like to share. <laughs> I've got a one-year-old that's almost at the point of saying, mine, 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 mine already. You take something from them and they freak out. And, and Andrew somehow convinces this little boy to bring what little he has to Jesus. It's incredible. There's no excuses in his mind. He doesn't understand what could happen, but it's a starting point. He says he's got a little and we might as well bring it to Jesus and see what he can do with it. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there and Jesus took the loaves. He gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Not just a bite like Philip was thinking. We can't even give them a bite. But Jesus gives them as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, and not just a little eat, they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Can you imagine this little boy? He's just got a little bit of food, heading back home to mom, And this man invites him to Jesus. 
seeing a multitude of people saying, we're going to feed these people. And, and Andrew is convinced that what he has is valuable, that Jesus can use it, that it's not insignificant. He doesn't make excuses and talk about the impossibilities. He doesn't say there's no way we can do this. He says, I don't really understand it, but this is all we've got. So he brings him to Jesus, and Jesus takes this little boy's knapsack and makes it into a meal for him to take home. It's an incredible, incredible story. And I think if we want to be great inviters, the second thing that we need to learn is that great inviters believe that those they invite have value for the kingdom of God. You probably aren't guilty, but I at times have looked at people's lives. I've looked at the choices that people have made. I've seen the consequences of the choices that people have made. And in my heart have made judgments that they may not be worthy of Jesus. I'm sad to say that, but it's the truth. I think if we'll all be a little vulnerable together, we would admit that there's people in our lives that we think are just too far gone for Jesus. And what they have to offer isn't sufficient to do anything for the kingdom of God. What we see is a multitude of people, 5,000 men, not including women and children, and all they've got is five loaves and two fish. I mean, it's a long shot here. There's no way we can connect those dots. It's impossible. I mean, they, they just don't have what it takes to be used by God in the ways that he needs. And so we make these snap judgments of people. And though we have relationships with them and though we see them every day at work and though we sit alongside them on a regular basis, though we share special moments of our lives, we don't really go there when it comes to Jesus just because we don't have a confidence that they have much to offer. And the truth is they probably don't, just like I don't, just like you don't. Just like we're all in the same boat of being insufficient when it comes to worth for Jesus, we've got to get beyond the judgments that we make that keep us from inviting people to Jesus and just believe that probably the greatest miracles that Jesus will ever perform start with the most impossible situations. That's what Jesus specializes in. He loves to take impossible situations and just blow our minds and prove that he's God. So who in our lives are too far gone? Who in our lives would never respond to an invitation to come to church? Who in our lives would want nothing to do with anything religious. I mean, they're just out there. They're, they're the people in our lives that just, we don't see value in them. If we're going to become great inviters, we've got to begin to see the value and the potential in people and understand that Jesus can do much with very little. Jesus can do much with very little. We've got to begin with a relationship. We've got to see the value in everyone for the kingdom of God. And then lastly, John chapter number 12, starting in verse number 20, says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Have you ever had anyone invite you to invite them to Jesus? 
It happens from time to time. It, it blows our minds. But this group of people comes to Philip and, and says to Philip, we'd like to see Jesus. Can you make that happen? Like, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get to him. I don't know what it looks like. Can, can you give me some direction here? And notice what Philip does because he has confidence in Andrew's ability to invite people. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in, told, in turn told Jesus. And here's a, a third truth that I believe wholeheartedly is that great inviters work together. Great inviters work together. The heartbeat behind a church that's named Synergy would exist around the fact that we can accomplish far more together than we can on our own. We can accomplish far more together than we ever will on our own. And so we can all take the great commission, this mandate that Jesus left us with before he ascended into heaven to go and make disciples of all nations. And we can all work as hard as we can to make that happen. And we can knock on doors and we can pass out brochures. We can stand on street corners and preach and we can do everything in our power to do it. But there's great advantage in working with others based on a relationship seeing worth and value in those who we don't typically see worth and value in and then working together. What would it look like if you have mutual acquaintances and instead of just one of you trying to invite someone to Christ, you get together and you come up with a plan and you just say, this is our target, man. We're going to go after him. I'm going to have a conversation. Will you follow up and have a conversation? Maybe we can invite them both over to dinner and we'll just tag team them and pin them down in the corner and cuff them up and drag them here. I don't know what it looks like, but what if we work together as a church rather than individually trying to bring people to Jesus, we would see far greater results. And some of us may not have as much confidence in making invitations as others of us have. And so it's beneficial to lean into the confidence that others in our lives have and partner with them in making invitations. Maybe you've never invited anyone to church and you have this desire to, but you just can't quite get there, but you know someone who loves inviting people to church and you just say, hey, can you help me? That's what Philip did. There's no shame in that. There's there's nothing in Scripture that would cause us to think that if you feel unconfident in asking someone to come to Jesus, that you should be ashamed to ask for help. That's what we're here for. We, we hold one another up, and we build one another up, and we work together. So if we can start with a relationship, and we can see value in people who seem to have no value, and we can work together, I'm telling you, we can see incredible results by inviting people. Not to church. Listen, the goal is not to have a lot of butts and seats. It's not. It's not. I'll say that till I'm blue in the face, but I can just tell you that the more butts that are in seats represent more lives that need Jesus Christ. And so I've had people from time to time say, you know, kind of, you know, where do you think the church is going? You know, you think you're going to stay small? I kind of like where it's at now. Do you think that we'll kind of stay here? I say, not, not if my dreams come true. 
Not if my dreams come true, because the more people that attend this church doesn't just mean that you're more insignificant than you are now in our church family. It simply means that we're reaching more people who need Jesus. Isn't that why the church exists? Isn't that why the church exists? If I could have a million people in this church, it wouldn't make me famous. It wouldn't, it wouldn't say, look at us and what we've done. It would say, man, God has transformed a lot of lives. It's incredible. And so I want to ask you to help me. Help me reach people. Help me invite people. I want to ask you to become an inviter. And, and not a bad inviter. You've all received bad invitations. You've all had the shy kid come up to you that wants you to come to his ball game. And he's like, I mean, like if you're not doing anything and, and uh, there's nothing else going on. And um, I mean, if you like baseball and uh, then I might be playing a game. And if you want to come, I mean, whatever, but don't feel any pressure. I mean, we're not inviting people to a ball game if they have nothing better to do. We're inviting people to experience hope that's found only in Christ. Why should we apologize for that? Why should we give people an excuse as we invite them? Why should we say, you should come to my church unless you have something going on and then don't worry about it, it's not a big deal? We should say, man, you have got to come with me to my church. You'll love it. You'll absolutely love it. I'm convinced. Why will I love your church? I don't know. You will, though. You will. You will. It's, it's not churchy. No one's going to look at you when you walk through the doors and, and start judging you, and you're not going to feel uncomfortable when you walk in the doors. People there are going to be really friendly. You're going to see a lot of people that are going to be glad that you're there. They're going to play some music. They're probably going to play something that's not even a worship song just to let you know they're normal people. You might recognize a song and say, man, they're really good. This is not what I expected when I came to church. They're going to sing some songs, and you're going to know that they're passionate about Jesus, and you're going to see that their lives have been impacted there, and then a preacher's going to get up, and he's not going to be wearing a suit. He's going to be just a normal guy. He's not going to preach down to you and make you feel like you're insignificant. He's not going to tell you what you're doing wrong in life. He's simply going to talk to you about Jesus. And at the end of the day, like, I'll send you a note and tell you thanks for coming. You'll love it. You'll love it. You got to come. I can't make it this week. That's okay. What are you doing next week? Well, next week, I've, what about the third week? Three weeks from now, what are you doing? I will come pick you up. Listen, I will take you to lunch afterwards if you'll just come to church with me. Why would we not be so excited to invite someone to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ when their lives for eternity could be altered for the better? I love the story that we heard as we open our time in the video of an eighth grade girl who cared enough about a friend to simply invite her to a Christmas worship experience. Here's the truth. Hannah didn't get up and preach that night. She didn't open the Bible and explain the things of God accurately and theologically with such brilliance that a light bulb went off in Kristen's head. All she did was say, I think you'll love it, you should come. She saw a friend who wasn't in church and invited her to church. And what God did in the life of that young lady was simply supernatural. Paul tells us that 
We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but Christ made us alive in him. That's what happened. We saw another eighth grade girl come alive that night. And it was just from a simple invitation. So we're leading up to Easter. I want to implore you. I'll get down on my knees and beg if that's what it takes. Would you invite someone to come to our church on Easter Sunday? Would you make a courageous step in the life of someone you have a relationship with? Beyond that, people you don't have a relationship with, that's great too. But who in your life, maybe someone that doesn't seem like they have a lot to offer, someone who's not in church, someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone who doesn't have their lives figured out, can you start in that relationship with and just have a conversation and just say, hey, I want you to do something for me. Would you come to church with me on Easter Sunday? And then wait for a response. Don't, don't be like, you know, hey, I want you to think about it, you know, we're having this Easter deal. You know, if you want to come, it'd be cool. Have a good day. Just be like, hey, Easter Sunday, April the 20th, two weeks from today, we're having an Easter worship experience. It's going to be incredible. Would you come with me? What do you think? Can I pick you up? Some of them will say no, and that's okay. But when you keep asking them, there'll be a moment in their lives, God willing, where they'll let down their barriers and they'll attend a worship experience and we're all praying together the mission of our church is that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior. And just because it doesn't happen that way doesn't mean it can't happen that way. And you may have invited someone before and it may have made things awkward between you and now you don't have the confidence to invite again. And I just want to tell you, that your reputation and your ego and your pride is worth laying down to be an inviter and to be a great inviter. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in our life. And thank you that what we learned from Andrew began with an invitation that you extended to him. And he first experienced life change in you. And as a result of that, he went searching for others to bring to you. And I pray that you would give us a heart of compassion for people in our lives, in our families, that we work with, that we go to school with, that we are on teams with. I pray in Jesus' name that you would enable us to be courageous enough to personally invite people to be our guest, specifically on Easter Sunday, two weeks from today. I pray as we take those bold steps of faith, even though they may seem impossible and we may be convinced in our mind that nothing will happen in the life of the people that we're inviting, would you just give us a confidence and a boldness to believe that you can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to your power that is at work within us. To you be the glory both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.